BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today we have uh, a really exciting interview. Um, you know, I, uh, we have a lot of great interviews, a lot of great discussions on this show. But today we're talking to a guy named John Cipher, who is a retired member of the CIA clandestine service, which is basically means he's a retired spy <laughs> from the CIA. Um, and not exclusively, but one of his main areas of operation kind of specialty was Russia and the former Soviet Union. So the thing I wanted to talk with him about is I wanted to get a sense of, you know, when we're looking at this stuff with Trump and Putin and Russia and trying to get a sense of what is going on here, clearly Donald Trump is not, even if we take the most maximal look, Donald Trump is not a traditional formal spy. He's not like a Russian agent in some formal sense because he's too he's too crazy and he's too erratic and he's out there saying like, oh, I love Putin. I want to deal with it. it, it it's, it's not that. So there's going to be a spectrum of people who like a Rick Ames or a Robert Hansen, these kind of high-level intelligence figures who were spies, taking money from Russia and giving them our secrets. To people who are just, you know, kind of do occasional favors and stuff like that. And there's this whole range. And, and I think we need to understand that spectrum to have a sense of what is going on here. And to me, there's no better way to get a sense of that spectrum and how these things work by than talking with someone who used to run agents and do this kind of stuff on our side and also had some involvement with... Uh, you know, finding people on our side who were spying for the Soviets and the Russians and so forth. So we have that conversation, and it was really David. What David Tainter, my my co-host, is here. Hey, Josh. What do you What do you think? I mean, we 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 obviously we already talked. Right. To John. We, we're just, we just we just taped the interview. Yeah, I found his comments about kind of a range that there is a spectrum of. I don't know how would you describe it. Sort of from useful idiot to like controlled asset, basically. Right in that. Um, it's not either or, it's not black and white, and there's a lot of gray area. And I think it seems like that's where the Russian intelligence services kind of thrives in this sort of yeah. in-between where even the person, even potentially the American citizen who is being recruited or kind of taken advantage of, Cultivated, I guess, yeah, wouldn't of, yeah. even necessarily know they're mixed up in the middle of it until... Until it kind, kind of, of cross a line. too late. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a fascinating interview, and we're going to get to it in a moment. Before we do that, um, I want to remind you that we want you to call in and give us your questions. Uh, we've we've been doing this for the last uh, a few episodes. We weren't able to do it la on last week's show, but we're going to keep to this um, on every episode. Um, the number to call is six four six eight six eight eight three nine three again that's six four six eight six eight eight three nine three it's basically a voicemail box uh give us a call 
Uh, let us know your first name and where you're from, if possible. Keep the answer concise because we're going to play it on the air, and I will answer as many of your questions uh, as I can. Before we get to the first one, let's have a quick word from our treasured sponsor, uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Born in Brooklyn and brewed in the Bronx, Grady's is New York's favorite cold brew, but you can have it delivered to your door no matter where you live. Their cold brew kit includes everything you need to create smooth, velvety cold brew at home. All you have to do is add water. No French press, no mess, no baristas. You save money, too. You get 36 cups of gourmet cold brew for only $30. That's less than a buck a cup. And shipping's free. Ready, ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Again, that's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, let's get into our questions for this episode. Hey, team. This is Mark from Los Angeles. Um, with the news of Mrs. Bettina and Alexander Torshin and all the other work with uh, the NRA in Russia for gun rights, I've always wondered why didn't anyone notice that the NRA is fighting for gun rights in Russia, but not, say, Canada, the United Kingdom, or other countries, and their sole focus on gun rights in Russia seems like, in the end, it could have been a clear clue for what happened uh, from the beginning there. Thanks so much. Uh, have a great day. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I think I, I wouldn't rule out that uh, I think I think the NRA has some uh, international work, like you know, sort of because uh, there are there are uh, obviously much more limited sort of gun rights groups in in different countries. But you're absolutely right. The NRA had a fairly public and really weird relationship with uh, with the, with these Russian nationals, and the we- the weird thing is that there's no, I mean, a there's no real gun rights movement in Russia, and like they have a like there's hunting in Russia, and basically the <laughs> the situation in Russia for guns is like a lot of people might want it to be here, which is to say... It's hard to get them. Well, right? yeah, it's, it, I, think it's, I think it is, you can, if you want to hunt, you can get like long guns, you can get rifles, you can get shotguns. And I think how it works is, you know, you have to, you apply for a permit, you have to take a class, there's a background check. But I think anybody who wants to hunt can get hunting guns. I think getting handguns is much more difficult. Sure. Um, and in, in any case, the point being, though, is that it wasn't like, they were working with some, you know, Alexander Navalny, who's the big kind of dissident there now. They're working with people very close to the government on something that seems to be very contrary to what the government wanted. So it never really made much sense. Like you've got a, you've got this group who we we want gun rights in Russia that the state that the government doesn't want, <laughs> and yet the government totally loves them. Right. And so there was. You're very right. This was a. This was basically an open secret, and it didn't make a lot of sense. And I think what you can see from the Butina indictment is, at least from the point where she moved here permanently in, in the summer of 2016, and seemingly well before, the FBI knew exactly what was going on here. Right. And they just kind of monitored her, monitored her. So, yeah, they've got a lot of explaining to do, because this isn't like... They wake up one morning and say, "Oh my God, we were infiltrated. We were, con- you know, we're." Con- it was I thought it was a, a good faith effort. And, yeah, well, I yeah. Mean, they, they were. It was eyes wide open, eyes wide open. So right. it's a very, it's a very good point. Hi, Josh. 
This is Richard calling from Sydney, Australia. I note your Twitter comments regarding Alan Dershowitz. What do you believe is the self-interest motivating Alan Dershowitz's behaviour, which from afar would appear to be damaging his reputation? Similarly, I'd be really interested in your thoughts regarding Rudy Giuliani. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, I would say that uh, from a near, it also seems pretty damaging <laughs> to his reputation. It's a really good question. And, and I have, uh, uh, you know, when I was younger, Alan Dershowitz was this kind of very famed Harvard Law professor who was the big civil liberties guy and all that kind of stuff, had a, had a, had a really big reputation and wrote a number of books that I think it, one was even turned into a fantastic movie. If you've never seen Reversal of Fortune, whatever you think of Alan Dershowitz, it is a fantastic movie with Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close. Uh, I don't know exactly what the deal is. I think uh, one thing is just Alan Dershowitz is a big self-promoter and very full of himself. I was going to say, I mean... One, you know, one way to look at it is that he keeps getting booked on television by yeah. saying these things. And yeah. You keep getting booked on TV. You promote yourself, your work, and maybe you Latest get a yeah, maybe you get a contributor deal down the line, and those can be worth decent amounts of money. So yeah, I think I think a lot of it is clearly that you get a lot of ego attention. Sure. Um, I think another thing is is that uh, Israel is a very big deal to Alan Dershowitz, and I think. Israel as as um, that is the Israel issue has become more partisanized uh, in U.S. politics over the last you know decade or two. I think that has been in some ways kind of a gateway drug to right wing politics for Dershowitz. So I think that's part of it too. Uh, but frankly, it's just. I think even for Americans and and for people who kind of watch up close at some level, it's a bit of a mystery. And I think the only real answer to that is that he was uh, kind of a clown uh, all along. And with so with with uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Rudy Giuliani was always a a kind of a dark figure. Uh, to put it mildly, um, he did have these great couple weeks uh, after 9-11. And I think even many of his staunchest critics would say that in the in the few days after the 9-11 attacks, he managed to speak to the sense of heartbreak and resolve that really galvanized a lot of New Yorkers um, pretty quickly. Rudy Giuliani reverted to form, and uh, you know he was about to his his mayor his term as mayor was ending, and he came up with this idea. And this was like this is like two or three weeks after the nine eleven attacks. He's like, maybe I should stay being mayor because <laughs> it's yeah no it was a, it was to me that was always the kind of the point where I kind of knew he would he he had to he had to fuck it up basically. Right. Um, having said that, he's he's clearly more of an absurd figure than he was 25 years ago and uh who knows but but the Dershowitz thing is a, is at least in my mind a bigger mystery than 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 what the deal is with with uh with Rudy Giuliani okay so one more question hi Josh Adam in New York City here 
Uh, over the past couple of years, it has seemed like each week of news includes some kind of horrible take in the opinion pages of our major national newspapers, or uh, a headline that is misleading, overly soft, or just getting a story totally wrong. Uh, why do you think these types of things happen, and what are you guys doing differently at TPM to avoid these types of mistakes? Thanks. Good question. I think th- I think there's a few a few different issues here. One is that our our political culture is very divided and very partisanized. So uh, to to step back outside of our own shoes, we we're going to see things that seem very off because different people in the country see things very differently. I think there's another level of it that is still even though in some ways it's less so than it was 10 or 20 years ago, the U.S. journalism profession is very wedded to this concept of balance. And often balance in tension with accuracy. And often balance more than accuracy. And I think, and obviously I come from one kind of political perspective, but I think the right has been very aggressive and very smart about leveraging that and realizing that the press collectively feels very bound to reporting both sides of an issue, even, even, though, even if one side is clearly disingenuous and inaccurate. So I think that's one of, the, one of the reasons that we have that. As to us, at some level, there's a million ways in which we try to do um, our you know our best job reporting as as we as we can, and th- and there are um, particular issues we face as a as a publication, which with a c- certain set of editorial values that kind of in, in in inform our coverage. I would say this just to give you one particular example that I think about a lot. Um, sometimes people will write in and say, "You did this piece, and you said you know the headline was." Trump, FBI is working against me and is part of the deep state. And people write in and say, you are broadcasting Trump's message and you are failing at your job because that is clearly wrong. That is propaganda. And even though you say you, you know, you may say in the article that it's incorrect, the headline is what counts and you are broadcasting his propaganda. Now, I myself sometimes look at mainstream media coverage and think, wow, you, you're, 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 you're just becoming a megaphone. So I even, I even have that criticism of others sometimes. But we have an audience of news junkies who have a high level of news literacy. So in a lot of cases, I specifically, but more often other people who work at TPM are making decisions that we don't need to spell out that that is ridiculous. People understand the the reality that we're working in. So when we do that headline, we are basically saying, "Here is this crazy thing, right. that the latest propaganda that Donald Trump is 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 spewing." David, right, like publishing yeah. it is almost kind of highlighting the the ridiculousness in itself. Yeah, and 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 I'm glad David chimed in here because. A lot of these decisions are David's decisions. I mean, I have a kind of a, a, a broad oversight, but I'm, you know, in, in most cases, I'm not making these headlines decisions myself. So in a way, 
I apply different standards to us than I do to other news organizations because I have an understanding of our readership. Right. Now, but maybe that's, you know, but maybe that's, I, I wonder about no, that No, it's a sometimes. good point. And I think you've seen networks like CNN sort of putting parentheses in their chyrons, sort of right. falsely <laughs> says whatever. And, right. you know, I think, yeah, there's been progress on that front for sure. It's a question, yeah, it's a good question obviously, as to how far each article should go in explicitly pointing out a falsehood or not. Sometimes, just to be honest, space is at a premium too, right? There's yeah. only so many words you can fit into a headline. You want people to kind of click and read the work that we're doing. So there's lots of different kind of things you have to balance in that. Yeah, and I mean, the big thing to me, again, is that a publication cannot be understood outside of the context of its audience. Right. A publication is having a conversation with its audience. And you speak, just as you do in your own life, you speak in different ways to different audiences. Um, but anyway, that is, that is, I guess, as close as I can come to an example of where we do wrestle with these issues and kind of think about, like, all right, do we, are, are, are we living up to these standards that we, that we apply sometimes to the mainstream media and, and find them wanting? Okay, so those are our those are our questions today. Thank you so much for calling in. Uh, we are trying to get to as many of these questions as we can. Let me give you the number again because we really want you to call in, ask your questions. We want to answer as many of these as possible. Let me give you the number again: six four six eight six eight eight three nine three. Again, give us a call. It's a voicemail box. Pretty pretty straightforward. Tell us your name, where you're from and uh, leave a concise message. So now we are on to talking to John Seifer. This is a really interesting interview. Uh, John is a retired uh, member of the CIA clandestine service, which is basically the, the spy side of the CIA as opposed to the analysts as, as he gets into. So without further ado, let's talk to John. So, John, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you're, you're joining us this morning from, you were just saying, from Northern Virginia, where I take it you live. I guess that's a, that is a normal, that, that makes sense for uh, a retired, retired CIA officer. It's, it's sort of the, the stomping grounds of the CIA in Northern Virginia. Yeah, it's the, the bedroom community for people working in the intelligence community and in military. And it's, it's good because when you live overseas for three, four years at a clip, it's very easy to rent your places out. So kind of home after a while. So, so let's start with this. Tell our you are you were in the clandestine service for the CIA in the CIA. Tell us to the extent that you can uh, the sort of the outlines of your career, kind of what areas you worked in, and so forth. Sure, I, I joined the agency and still back during the Cold War when there was a Soviet Union. Um, I originally joined to become an analyst. So inside the CIA, there's sort of an analytical cadre that puts together information from all different, from spies overseas and diplomats and military officers and the NSA and everybody to present to policymakers. And then there's the clandestine service, which is the arm that tries to collect human intelligence from spies overseas. So I actually joined thinking I was going to be an analyst out of graduate school. Um, But when I got in, sort of became more interested in making a career of it. At first, I thought I'd go get a PhD or something. Um, and it was close to the people who want to go overseas. And, and so I switched very early before I ever actually worked in the analytical side of the house and joined the clandestine service. And I worked on, back then, you know, Soviet issues and then moving into Russian issues. I served in 
Northern Europe and in Russia, in the Balkans during the Balkan Wars, and then uh, you know, during terrorism days in Southeast Asia, and Pakistan, and places like that. So, for, for for our listeners, when we talk about the the uh, the analytic side and the clandestine service, is is that r- roughly comparable to? the services in the military in the sense of kind of once you're in one, you know, outside of sort of, you know, very, uh, very rare exceptions, you're not going back and forth, basically. You're kind of in one, and that's your career. Is that is that how it works, or is it a little more fluid than that? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, they're almost like separate tribes, <laughs> or like Iroquois tribes in one larger tribe. Um, so... You know, they do have specialized skill sets. So people who work overseas in a clandestine service are involved in trying to recruit spies to work for us, um, to handle and keep them secure. So it involves, you know, living overseas for long stretches, being involved in foreign cultures, languages, um, the skill set required to sort of manipulate people and, and put them in a place where they might be interested in providing the United States government with the secrets that we need, whereas the analytical cadre tends to spend more, most of their career in Washington, much more sort of almost like academic experts. But even though they're very different and sort of have different career paths, you know, in recent years, leadership and CIA has tried to do their best to sort of push them together as much as they can, because in many ways, you know, the, for example, going after terrorists works better when almost sort of the academic experts work with the field officers. And so... Uh, there is an effort to sort of make both of them spend more time together, if you will. Now, you were mentioning that that early on you were thinking you might get a PhD, and I think you said you came into the CAA from graduate school. What what area were you? Is this international relations or 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 a, a, a regions? What, what were you What were you studying? So I studied history in undergraduate in upstate New York, and then I went to Columbia University and for uh, international affairs, sort of master's degree. But at that time, it was, you know, sort of arms control and Soviet studies and, and national security kind of studies issues. And, you know, shortly after I got in, you know, I guess not shortly, but before too long after I got in, and I actually learned Russian early on and, and spent some time in, in Scandinavia working on Russian issues, you know, the Soviet Union started to fall. And so uh, things changed a bit. So, yeah, I, I sort of came in with, you know, international affairs, history kind of you know, a lot of writing a lot of interest in, in foreign issues interesting interesting so uh, you know all of our everything you know half of the news these days is 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 dominated by this sprawling investigation slash controversy whatever you want to call it about president trump and uh russia whether it's collusion or what the relationship is or what happened in 2016 and and obviously this is this has also spawned a lot of interest in in uh intelligence tradecraft in general uh the sort of intelligence cultures of the u.s and then soviet union slash russia and so forth so one of the reasons that i wanted i i've wanted to have you on the podcast for a while but one of the particular reasons is we we just had we're just coming off this this summit in Helsinki and that has you know we at TPM have been you know kind of covering this for years but this seems to have crystallized the issue for a lot of for lack of a better word kind of mainstream commentators in a way it had not before that something is up in this relationship 
so what I wanted to ask you is, if, if <laughs> even if you have a maximal take on whatever is going on with Trump, he is certainly not a he would he could not be a conventional intelligence asset. <laughs> it's too it's too strange a situation and too half public and too erratic and so forth. But for the way in the way for how um, recruitment leverage works, I would assume there's a great spectrum of how one either recruits people or kind of gains influence over them or leverage. So what can you tell us about what is the sort of the spectrum of possibilities? And let's set kind of Trump explicitly to the side for a moment of Mm -hmm. if Russia is trying to kind of bring someone under their influence, how does it work? And those are those are big questions there, but and you see, I think you're you're hitting on it quite right because there is some subtlety and a spectrum to this. And part of the problem with the debate is it seems it's either black or white, and both sides are able to use the black or whiteness of it to sort of push their agenda. So let me step back a little bit, which is interesting about Soviet and then Russian intelligence and how it's a little bit different than what we do. Um, most intelligence agencies in the United States, Britain, other places, um, they both collect and analyze information. So we have spies overseas trying to give us information that we can't get any other way. We might have scientific assets, you know, satellites, whatever, trying to collect information to get into the process by which analysts and others can provide intelligence to policymakers so they can make better intelligence. Now, the, Russian, the Russians grew up with a little bit different take on it. So they've always been very good at collecting intelligence, the spy side of the business. But right from the beginning, right from the beginning of the Soviet state in 1917, they were much more focused on subversion. So in 2016, you probably saw this term thrown around a lot called active measures. And so in many ways, the Russian service, it collects intelligence to provide policymakers. But more importantly, they try to use a variety of tools to have their way in the world. And so it's not intelligence collection, it's more like I say subversion. This is disinformation, propaganda, cyber threat, even assassination. We saw the use of trolls, bots, deception, weaponizing social media, fake news, conspiracy, all these things together. Another word, another term might be political warfare. So what they're trying to do obviously is use these different tools to affect something they want. In this case, they want to create chaos in the United States. They want to try the best they can, split the United States off from Europe so that there's not a sort of strengthened, unified NATO on their Western borders. And over the years, some of the things they've done is they've created these you know, fake stories, stories like the United States created the AIDS virus that they would spread around the world, try to push their agenda and other things. And we saw in 2016 them use this, this weaponized, this kind of information. They took the information from the DNC hack and tried to weaponize it. They tried to, you know, take advantage of our dysfunction and partisanship um, and, and all these things. So, so there's a little bit of difference in how the Russians do things. But they also, and what's critical here is to do that effectively, they have to have a very good understanding of our political system. And they also have to have some spies, if you will, some people in place that can help them aim the material, and, and use it effectively. And so they do try to recruit and find people that can help them out. Now, they do it either, like you said, recruiting someone who is what we would call the controlled source, a person who works full-time as a spy for you. 
And in this case, you mentioned you don't think Donald Trump is a controlled spy, and I tend to agree with you, because in our world, if I'm trying to find a source, I'm looking for someone who has special access to something we need, we can't get another way, but I'm also looking for personality traits that will make that person interested in helping us, whether it's their ego, resentment against their their uh, leadership or against their boss or something. But then the third piece, which is really important, is someone that can be under some level of control, someone who will follow your rules, will follow your procedures, they don't get themselves caught. Because what you don't want is a, someone who's spying for you who's sort of out of control, stealing too much or saying too much and getting themselves caught or getting you caught. And that would and seem to rule out, Trump, rule out Donald Trump pretty, pretty quickly right, on, exactly. so, on option so three. Trump had the, yeah, exactly. Donald Trump has the vulnerabilities you'd be interested in. He's the kind of guy you might go after because he you know, talks too much, has a zipper problem, is a little bit corrupt, you know, willing to take money, you're willing to break rules. So that part is there, but, but being able to control him is not there. Let me ask so you. Just one, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, let me ask you one question. When, when you're talking about the yep. the active the, the the focus more on subversion or active measures in the Soviet and then Russian uh, intelligence culture, does that does does do you see that as growing out of the fact that it, you know it's a revolutionary state trying to export revolution, or is that something that even goes back to the to the pre-Soviet days, just what, what is, where does that come from? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, so I, I think the, the exporting revolution communist part of it is a critical piece. But also, you know, the, the Russian Okhrana, the special services, the secret services prior to the communist state coming into play, were also quite ruthless and did these things. In fact, you know, when we, we think back to the early communist state of Stalin and Lenin, you know, those are those were um, cover names used to protect them from the Russian secret services. You know, it wasn't their true names. Right. So, so there is sort of a long history of secret services, spy services. You know, this, this whole sort of issue that we're talking about in Russia, but it became supercharged in the in the communist space. So they had to, you know, take advantage, take care of, you know, stopping enemies of the people, and they had to try to spread their their message around the world. So that's where this notion of, you know like you said, a spectrum of people. So it's one thing that, in, like in our world, to have someone who's a recruited, controlled spy for us. But in the Soviet space, in the Russian space, it's useful to have a variety of people. You might have someone who's a all-out, secret, hidden spy, but you also might have someone who is, you know, back in the old days, a communist who's willing to help you sort of on the side because they have common ideologies. They might have someone who is a, who is a communist who may not actually be you know, working directly with you, but it's still fulfilling your needs. So in the hierarchy of Russians, there's, there's people they call useful idiots. Those are people who don't really know what they're doing, but they're helping the Soviet or Russian state. There's people who are what we call witting collaborators who are sort of caught up in some version of compromise. And, you know, they don't do everything you say. They don't work directly for you, but they're helping you in some way. And then, you, you know, at the other end of the spectrum are your controlled assets and spies. And so the Russians are very savvy this way. They'll, they'll use people anywhere along that spectrum that benefit them. And so presumably on the controlled, we're talking about people like Rick Ames or Robert Hansen, these sort of like, I guess what, uh, uh, Ames was Ames was CIA and Hansen was FBI, right? Am I 
Am I getting that? Remembering that's, that right? That's right. That's right. And and you know people uh, deep, you know, high up in the hierarchy, huge um, intelligence compromises. But these were people who, I guess, in those, in both of their cases, it was a mix of money and resentment. I don't think either of them were had any ideological uh, uh, thing. But so those, the, but those people were paid to hand stuff over. So let's, I, I guess. Um, We'll we'll keep it hypothetical, but as people, you have you have all this discussion right now of maybe there is you know kind of you know a tape or something or some kind of you know one supercharged compromising thing, or maybe it's just a long history of uh, you know corrupt business transactions that can't be revealed that somehow. Uh, Vladimir Putin, or maybe it's better just to see it as as the Russian state more generally, has some kind of leverage over the guy that that increasingly seems to be maybe the only plausible or one of the more plausible explanations for the behavior we see. So that I assume that would be something on that when you said like winning collaborators, maybe someone who. Uh, they they feel you have some leverage over them and they'll kind of help out where they need to and it's sort of a, is is that like flesh that out how does that work or how you know hypothetically obviously we don't know the specifics in 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 this case but how how does that kind of framework work well i think you're you're, you're onto it so you know compromise can be much more subtle than you know we have a tape and we'll use it against you it's that over time you you do things that you know are sort of borderline you know, right or wrong, you've done little favors for each other, you know, it's nothing terrible, but if somebody found out about it, it would do you a disservice. And, and over time, if you're sort of always at the edge of propriety, you know, at the edge of legalism, this sort of slight, this sort of soft gangsterism stuff, helping each other out, maybe exchanging some information, over time you sort of realize that, hey, I'm, you may not even admit it to yourself, but I'm in pretty deep here, and therefore it's just best that, you know, I don't either... To admit to myself that stuff, but you, so you don't need if you're going to use compromise. It doesn't have to be a direct in-your-face thing. It's almost you know, little reminders. Or if you had a whole career of operating at the, the margins like that, you just might almost have a, a sixth sense that that hey, you know, I have to sort of steer clear of. I don't want people digging around in this stuff because it's not going to look good. So I, I suspect there is some version of compromise control, but I suspect that the control is almost in Donald Trump's head. And, you know, we've had agents that work for us that you never had, you know, most most of our top agents, they know exactly what they're doing, who they're working for, who they're spying for, you know, for the CIA, for the United States. But we also have some that, you know, they don't really want to admit it. They're sort of, we're sort of helping each other out. They're sort of doing what we want them to do. There's no benefit into putting it in their face and trying to make them sign on the dotted line. Right. Everybody sort of knows where the deal is, and they're, and they're helping each other out, you know, patting each other on the back, and so we sort of leave it at that. So I, I think there is an element of compromise with Donald Trump, and there is an element of this long-term sort of corruption, gangsterism, um, that has sort of led to this point. So I know that I don't... I don't know, remember precisely when it was. I think it was testimony in uh, early 2017 where John Brennan, who was uh, the CIA director in Barack Obama's second term, had this, I think that, again, I think this was 
during Trump's presidency, during one of these open hearings they had about the broader Russia question and so forth, where he had this quote that got picked up a lot, where he said something to the effect yeah. of, you know, people, they don't even really know when they cross the line. And one, you know, kind of one day you realize you've crossed the line and there's no going back. And there's sort of, and I guess that's that's sort of good, on the other side, that's good uh, tradecraft. You kind of pull people along and then they can't go back. Do you remember that quote? Is that, do you, does that ring? Oh, I, def- I definitely remember that quote. And to me and my former colleagues, that quote just jumped, leapt off the page, or if you watch it in person, was it? It was very well crafted. It was they clearly thought it through before he made that. He didn't just come off and say that out of nowhere. And that definitely means what you think it means is. So that quote, yeah, it, it jumped out at us too. And I and his um his point was exactly what what you're suggesting that people get themselves into difficult situations. And yeah, as a, as a good but we would say case officer, intelligence officer. Can, if you can um, subtly move someone along that spectrum to the point where you both are achieving each other's needs and you're already sort of in deep and you don't really have to put it on the line and say, hey, do you realize what you're doing? That, that's, a, that's just as effective as, as you know, a more direct approach. It's interesting. There was, I, I, was, I was reading an article recently, and I think this is maybe... Um, I don't know if she's a Russian expat or a just an, an ethnic Russian, uh, you know, someone from Russian descent in, in the United States, but someone working in the political science field who has a th- who has a theory of basically how I guess Soviet era Soviet era and post Soviet society works, where you have sort of weak rule of law and Basically, the point being, it's not when people talk about, you know, compromise is the big, you know, kind of word that everybody is suddenly very familiar with in the United States, that it's not a matter of kind of like, I've got this one piece of kryptonite, and if you don't keep in line, I'm going to drop it on you. Something much more subtle that kind of, and it might be as much in your own head, like you don't quite know what you, I don't know quite know what you've got on me, but I don't want to find out. So I'm just going to kind of... (laughs) Be helpful where I need to, so we don't have to go there. I guess. Um, let me uh, let's go back to Brennan for a second because this is, um, and this gets, this gets into a, a a very hypothetical era area, but one that is fascinating to me. It it certainly seems like you you had this very weird weird transition where. Uh, the government was handed over to a new administration, like we always do here when you have a transition of power. And yet there were open questions about what was going on with that campaign and that and that group who was coming in. Um, and it certainly seems like even at that time, uh, a lot of the top intelligence figures had kind of open questions like what's going on here? You know, who who's. Who's taking over here? Um, what can can you put yourself in the sort of in those people's heads? Kind of how do you, as an intelligence professional, and obviously it's it's a little different if you're like head of the CIA as opposed to you know a, a, in you know part of the of the larger service. 
But what do you think the people in the who kind of follow these things, who protect against these things, were thinking as the new administration came in? Yeah, so th- this has ended up becoming, you know, hyper-politicized. But, um, you know, I've worked quite a bit with the FBI on counterintelligence issues, for example, with the Hansen case and others. And people who get involved in counterintelligence, their job is to protect the United States from subversion or from foreign intelligence officers stealing information from us. So I think by... You know, mid-2016, there were enough sort of things that the intelligence community and the counterintelligence community were picking up that they realized it was important. They realized the Russians were up to something, and there was a number of troubling, you know, cases and connections and meetings and things. And I think some of this came from allies overseas that were able to pick up some of this, and some of it came maybe from our own sources. And so, but it was a dicey issue politically, because as it looked like they were more and more tied to the Trump campaign, you know, intelligence services. We want to work. We want to collect foreign intelligence, provide it to policymakers, and hope they do the best. They don't, you know, with that information. Getting involved in some fashion in U.S. politics is something that we will do anything to try to avoid. So, there is a concern when things touch on the on the U.S. system that um, you want to take real care there and 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 be careful. So, I'm sure it was a very difficult series of discussions and things where they. And there's some good reporting on this where, you know, Brennan and others and Clapper were trying to provide Obama with quietly with enough information to understand what was going on without getting more information to the system and make it worse. Now, what's happened, of course, since Trump has come in and since some of this has become publicized through the Steele dossier and other things, is Trump immediately turned it into this was he looks at intelligence agencies and FBI counterintelligence agencies as the Obama intelligence agency or the Obama counterintelligence agency and made this into completely into a political issue and you know and therefore said uh, Brennan was clearly working against me personally and he's part of this deeper state that's trying to un- undercut you know Republicans or undercut Trump and so that's a very handy political uh, device to put out there and you know as Mr. Brennan has continued his criticisms and even using the words like treason when it comes to Donald Trump, he's sort of become a real handy straw man for, for, for Donald Trump to sort of say, here, see, I show you, it is a deep state. They've been working against us. They claim they're intelligence professionals, but they're clearly partisan and politicized. And so we've gotten to a point now where it's hard to separate the professional public servant counterintelligence responsibility from the, the political. And part of that is because this administration has chosen to push everything into the political arena. And so it, we're in a very, it's very difficult to pull that aside. But I, my understanding is that they took those things very seriously as they were uncovering them and tried to do it in a professional and careful, nonpartisan way. Well, this has always struck me as, and this isn't a matter of defending the Obama administration, either the sort of the intelligence leadership during his administration or the more, you know, kind of the more political, you know, Barack Obama, the people working for him in the White House, so forth. But it has always struck me that this was a very, as you say, a very difficult thing to balance. I mean, on the one hand, you want to do the job and protect the country and so forth. But anything that amounts to the intelligence services, uh, surveilling, investigating, revealing information about one of the candidates, in a, I mean, that's like an impossible situation. I mean, I don't know how, um, 
you know, it's it's as you say, it's just really, really. There's kind of no good option there. Um, let, let me let me ask you this because one thing that is as as we've had this very acrimonious partisan tug of war over the details of how the investigation began and these uh, uh, you know. Uh, struck and 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 those texts and the steel dossier and all this kind of stuff. So, the FBI says that the investigation proper began at the end of July 2016, and the trigger was that uh, information from Australia about the conversation with George Papadopoulos and that uh, uh, I, I believe it was the Australian ambassador to London, or I guess they don't call them ambassadors, whatever. In any case, that it started with the tip about George Papadopoulos. But one thing that, and I, I, I believe that is true as far as it goes, but as I was doing a post on this last night, and you have these, uh, these five national security advisors announced in March, and you have Paul Manafort comes on board in a very senior role in the campaign at the end of March. And one of those five has, if I'm understanding this, has basically already been surveilled under a FISA warrant and kind of someone who the FBI maybe wasn't sure he was an agent, but someone who was very seriously looked at as being a Russian asset already. So he's you know not charged with anything, but he's that. Manafort had also been surveilled as someone who was uh, working as a, I guess, either as a an agent of Russia or of Russian interests in Ukraine, again, prior to 2016. So you have six people coming in in what seem to be pretty senior roles, and two of them have already been investigated as potentially Russian spies. It seems impossible for me to, to believe that that didn't get everybody's attention, even if there was no investigation started in March. Is that am I? Is that a, is that reasonable for me to think? No, I, I think you're right, and I think you could make an argument. It's been again hypercharged now, but you could make an argument to the FBI and others uh, dilly dallied and actually tried to avoid jumping into this for some of some of those same reasons. So since they were involved with something really unusual to them, a presidential campaign. They probably didn't push as fast and hard as they might have otherwise if, if they were trying to push after these people. So foreign intelligence services like the CIA and others, we get information from foreign partners who may be surveilling and things, meetings overseas or from agents that are telling us things that are happening. The FBI can track Americans and can and do those things on their own authorities that often aren't shared with CIA. And they saw a series of things happening. What happened by mid-2016 is these things were really coming together. And they came together to a point where the FBI had to start taking action. They probably would have preferred that it stay under the radar and didn't force their hand, but it did. And, you know, you got people like Carter Page who, you know, as more information comes out, it's pretty reasonable that the government was looking at him. And Paul Manafort, you know, there is no way you can make tens of millions of dollars in that part of the world without understanding that system, without understanding the crossover between intelligence and mafia work. Right. And you were talking about it before, about this academic. I mean, I was looking up, there's a New Yorker article that talks about Compromat, but it also talks, they call it the Sistema. The exactly, Sistema, that's, the, that's the one I know, was referring the, to. Yeah, the system of unspoken rules, informal hierarchy, 
you know, about what you can do and what you cannot do, and everybody sort of understands where they stand in that system and what they can get away with and not do. And so someone like Paul Manafort clearly understands that system and is comfortable in it. So, you know, if you look at that June 2016 meeting that involved Manafort and Donald Trump Jr. and others, yeah, it's possible to suggest that Donald Trump Jr. and others were, were naive and their willingness to sort of collude with with Russia might based on, you know, ignorance or naivete, but Paul Manafort certainly understand understood what was going on at that point. Isn't and this is this is something I picked up from um I mean just from years of reporting, but also some people who worked in that same uh part of the world and some of the same you know, uh, same years as, as Manafort, that my understanding is that if you are, like, let's say, let's say you're, you're a U.S. person who's, you know, kind of doing political work in Ukraine or other parts of the sort of, you know, the Russian near, what they call their near abroad, that even if you're really kind of keeping your nose clean and working with the right people and all that kind of stuff, that it is just kind of in the nature of things, A, that you are going to cross paths with a lot of spies, but that you'll often, I mean, this is how it's been presented to me, that people from your former agency or maybe from the FBI will, you know, you come back and say, hey, can we just talk? Just like, you know, and it's sort of understood. This is kind of in everybody's interest. If you're if you're a U.S. person, you, you want to make sure you're not you know, getting crosswise with anybody. But I guess the point is, is that even if even if you assumed that Paul Manafort were a totally clean operator, you're going to cross paths with all sorts of spies. Their spies are spies. And you're just going to know that world from having worked over there for 15 or 20 years. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what happened in 2016 with this group of people, Papadopoulos and Manafort and Carter Page and and Roger Stone, and as, as WikiLeaks started pushing, and the Russians were increasingly showing up here, none of them ever did the right thing. None of them ever said, hey, should we talk to someone about this? No one ever said, hey, we're receiving stolen material from American citizens. Shouldn't we at least check with our lawyers? Should we at least talk to the FBI about this? And so at some level, you know, naivete can only go so far. And some of these people, like you said, like Paul Manfred, they understand the system. They understand that, yeah, if you want to not get yourself in trouble, you should sort of explain to the law enforcement authorities sort of what's going on so that when they see these kind of things, they don't make the wrong assumptions if, in fact, you're doing things on the up and up. What is your your read, obviously based on incomplete evidence, we don't know all the details, what is your read of, of Paul Manafort's role in all of this, just based on on what we know and based on your experience? How does he strike you? Uh, well, it sort of morphed over time. So from, from the early times, my, my view was he was sort of the key player. Because, again, he was the one that had the experience of understanding what, what we just called the system, or that sort of informal, you know, the way the Russians work and sort of this familial trust and what works, doesn't work, networks who can get away with things. Again, sort of like this... I guess 1920s world where, the, you know, the, the criminals sort of have their own system of rules and laws that everybody sort of follows. And so Paul Manafort coming in from, from working in Ukraine on behalf of Russians and, and himself in hock and in money to some ser- serious and senior Russians, you know, the fact that they hired him means that they probably didn't do a very good job of, of, of looking into him beforehand. 
but he also clearly had a bunch of baggage and therefore um, an understanding of the things that were going on. And, and so I, I always thought he was sort of a key player. Um, you know, as he's gone on, you see that, you know, you're learning more and more about just how deep in debt and things that he was. So he may have been doing some of these things for his own purposes and not necessarily sharing it with others around him. But, yeah, I think he's a, he's a key player. And, and, you know, they're obviously putting as much pressure on it as he can to sort of explain himself. Because, again, if you read that Steele dossier, he plays a key role in handling some of these issues for the campaign, if it's true. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, w- what struck me there is there, there's reporting, as, as you mentioned, that he he seems to have owed about $20 million to this to this uh, Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, uh, who's, you know, reputedly very close to uh, Putin and so on and so forth. And um, he, in, in 2015, he... His his family found out that he was carrying on an affair, um, and his his marriage was sort of in collapse, and apparently he actually uh, institutionalized himself, or you know went uh, checked into a hospital. Uh, I think in Arizona at some point in 2015, as his life was sort of you know collapsing around him basically, and his family thought he might take his own life and so forth, and it struck me and. Tell me from you know from your line of work, if you're someone who wants to squeeze someone, who wants to kind of leverage someone, someone who is in that sort of distress, someone who owes that kind of money, is almost ideal for for this kind of use. Um, and I I would absolutely. imagine that I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just saying absolutely. Yeah. So where what is your how to do you have any sense of how this all plays out? Either let me—I guess let me let me sort of sketch out two ways we can we can think about that question. One is just how much we will ever be able to really find out. Um, you know, that's one thing. Are we ever really going to find out what happened here, what didn't happen here? And then, secondly, how it kind of plays out in a. Uh, in either a criminal justice or a political framework, but let's start with the first because, in some ways, that's that's the that's the part that is really outside of the domain of knowledge for most of us. What do you think we'll be able to figure out here? Yeah, what, what's hard is there's a there's a fundamental difference between evidence that can be used in a legal case and either intelligence or information, so that you have knowledge or know something. And the problem is that so much of this is pushed into the legal space, the rules of evidence and what can be used and other things make it particularly hard. So a great majority of counter-espionage investigations never come to fruition. And in many of them, you know exactly what happened and what, what crime has taken place, but you can't use your sources to testify. Or information that would be used in the trial could hurt other cases and things. And so, for example, I was involved with the FBI, like I said, on the Hansen case. And there was a period in that case where we knew exactly what was happening. I could have taken to your mother and showed her the thing about what, what was up, and she would have said, this man's a spy for the Russians and form of the Soviet Union. Anybody would have agreed. But when you go into the Justice Department with them, they were the roll their hands, I don't know, a good lawyer could get this thrown out, they might question this. And the Justice Department didn't want to take the case when essentially any 
breathing person would have would have seen what was happening. Now, in that case, it was lucky because we were able to continue to track him and catch him in the act. But many of these counter-espionage investigations, you may think you have a lot of knowledge or information, but you can't take it to the full place where it needs to go in the, in the legal space. So I do worry here that, that there's information we may never get to, that maybe we, we meaning the U.S. government or in the intelligence services, they and counterintelligence service they know. But there's also, you got to remember, if in fact uh, collusion took place, it's being done by a professional intelligence service whose job, whose entire job is to keep everything secret and keep it hidden. So there's going to be pieces here. We've seen a lot of sort of semi-public stuff. There's cyber attacks and the trolls and the bots and the fake news and stuff the Russians were up to, but we haven't seen, you know, their truly clandestine cases the real espionage cases behind this. We're only seeing sort of the edges of things and whether that turns out to be enough to make a, a legal case that, that makes everybody understand exactly what's going on, I'm skeptical that we'll get there. I guess there's there's this case where, uh, I'm not sure, probably some of our, our listeners are familiar with this, but there's, I can't remember if they're called the Venona Papers or transcripts, that basically there was, I guess it was basically signals intelligence from the 1940s, and this is where, if I'm remembering this correctly, that sort of deep in the bowels of of the U.S. Uh, intelligence services, they had pretty good evidence on Alger Hiss, but that only was, uh, I guess, declassified in like the 1980s, so 40 years after the case almost. Am I remembering this kind of correctly? And, and I guess it's you're saying it could be like yeah. that, like we it, stuff that the real goods may not be released for 50 years or something like that. Exactly. So Venona was the sort of cover name used by, you know, I guess the would call the early NSA working with the FBI and others to break the Soviet codes during World War II. So during World War II, the Russians were our allies. Um, and so there wasn't a big push to figure out what they were up to, but a couple sources came forward, Whitaker Chambers and um, I'll think of the other woman's name, and, and, and hinted that the Russians were up to you know incredible amount of espionage in the United States. Oh, is, is this so Elizabeth Bentley? Am I remembering that? Is this? Elizabeth, yes, that's correct, okay. Elizabeth Bentley. And then eventually as they started to look, they started to look into the Russian uh, communications traffic, and it, you know, through a sort of a histor- uh, heroic effort to break those codes, we're able to figure out some of the things that the Russians were doing in support of, you know, their espionage efforts in the United States, which included them, you know, penetrating the Manhattan Project, the Atomic Weapons Project. They had a number of sources inside Los Alamos and the and the Atomic Weapons pro- Program, so much that they could actually check reporting from each other. They knew more about that program than the vice president of the United States did, Truman, under FDR. And so, yes, it wasn't until the late 1990s, in fact, that Venona was was declassified and put out. And there's a number of good books on this, on Whitaker Chambers. There's one called The Haunted Wood and what the Russians were up to during that time. Um, And so that's exactly right. A lot of times, and, and, and from that, we've learned there's a number of people that the government had really good insight into the fact that they were spying for the Russians but could never make a case during the time because they didn't want to blow this big, larger thing that allowed them insight into what the Russians are doing writ large. Now, I, I guess when you were talking about Hansen, my, what, what I recall, and I don't know if this is the I feel like this is maybe more the case with Rick Ames, that sometimes you have a case in an intelligence service, whether it's uh, the, F, you know, the uh, counterintelligence side of the FBI or the CIA, 
where it may not even be proven, let alone in a, at a legal level, but let's say you're the, I don't know how the structure works exactly, but you're the people in the CIA who are, making, who are trying to find spies within the CIA, that you may say, like, we really think that there's something wrong with Rick Ames. And we can't even, we're not 100% sure even ourselves, let alone proving it legally, but, like, let's not, let's kind of hive off Rick Ames because we just, we're not sure about him. And that that happens sometimes in intelligence services because, and, and even the Rick Ames person knows, you know, and kind of, that person's kind of in limbo. I guess it's sort of like, wasn't there with uh, Kim Philby, like, there was a lot of suspicions that he was a Russian spy for, like, a decade before he defected. If, am I remembering this right? But they didn't really know. No, you are remembering that right, yes. So I guess that, that just sort of happens. And as you say, that, that there's lots of things that can't be acted on, even, even, even though there are suspicions. Let me, let me finish up on, on, on one point. This is, you know, it's sort of something people speculate about, but it's sort of worrisome. Uh, my understanding of how the, the legal structure of classification, the U.S. government's most sensitive secrets that the president, by definition, legally, gets to know everything. And that the entire process of classification is, even though there's all this kind of bureaucracy around it, it's the president saying, I, this I deem to be classified, this, you know, it's, it's all kind of stems from him. And yet we have this situation where there's some question about what's going on. So how should... Should we be worried when he's having secret, you know, private conversations with Vladimir Putin when he has access to everything? Uh, absolutely. And that's a really good question. And it's a dicey thing that people in this administration are going to have to deal with. So just yesterday we saw this, for example, when Trump said that he wanted to pull the clearances from a number of former CIA and FBI directors. And the question is, can he do that? And indeed, the president has... Um, Article 2 constitutional authority as the main classifier in the government to do that. Now, of course, no president has ever put their, put their fingers on and tried to get that deep into making individual choices on classification efforts. The norms are against that. The regulations and things are against trying to politicize those things. But Trump has shown that he is a complete norm breaker on these kind of things, and anything that can protect him, he'll do. And so... You know, in this case, these guys, they were revoking their clearances not because they did anything wrong or can't be trusted or did something insecure, but because they, he disagrees with them. So in the same sense is what you're talking about. The president of the United States, yes, if, if he wants any sort of to be briefed on anything in the national security space, he can be. Now, of course, the people, there's, there's, there's you know, the CIA puts out hundreds of thousands of pages, millions of pages, intelligence to you, the NSA, more, the FBI, some, all these places, Department of Defense has classified stuff. So there is a sifting and a decision-making matrix about what you share with the president. You, most presidents want to know the big issues, you know, whether China, what is China up to, what, what's going to happen with Iran, what are the key terrorists trying to strike, what's the price of oil, blah, 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 you know, Russia. Right. You know, but if some, a president says, I want to know your source in Romania, by all rights, the government works for him, and the intelligence services work for him, and are willing to do that. Now, most again, most presidents don't ask for that, don't need it. Um, 
if, if there's information that is necessary to help a president understand how important a piece of information or how true or not true it might be, they will provide as much context as they need to be. So in this case, you have a president who also doesn't have a lot, you know, a lot of tolerate, toleration to read, read a lot of stuff or he's impatient. And so you're going to have to make a decision like what do you share with them and what not. Like I'm sure they'll try to share with them the big issues and the big important things they need to be shared. But I wouldn't, you know, if I was working, feel a need that he had to know specific names and, and, you know, detailed tactical information. But if he's so inclined to try to get that and ask for that, that will put people in a lot of really difficult positions. Some people may choose to try to do their best to sort of avoid answering that question. Others might think that we need to provide that to him. So that's a real interesting, you know, place where a lot of these national security professionals are right now. Let me ask you, there, there, I, I assume there is a, a community of, of ex-CIA, ex-other agencies in the, in the intelligence community, um, people who are retired, um, and I know that people who are retired from these various agencies, in some cases their current professional work, you know, brings them back into the loop of some issues. But basically, among people who are retired, not actively work, I, I assume there has to be just people talk and people speculate and like kind of people sort of, uh, you know, kind of chew the facts with, with their friends and kind of everybody's curious and not just curious, but but uh, concerned is... is I assume those conversations are happening among former intelligence professionals, and I don't mean like conspiratorial conversations, just people talk and wonder. Is that, am I right? I mean, is, is there a whole kind of speculation in that in that world as people try to figure out what's going on here? Yeah, I think it's probably very similar to, to you know, everybody trying to figure this out. There might be more informed about these issues, but, you know, groups of friends and former colleagues, you know, who've worked together for years and years are certainly going to talk and speculate. But also, you know, when I was inside, I worked with people for, you know, three decades, oftentimes in all kinds of places, and had no sense of what their political, their politics were. Because we were all mission-focused. We worked for Republicans and Democratic presidents. Nobody was ever, you know, talked politics really inside. Of course, when you're outside and you're, you know, a regular citizen, you know, among a group of friends, you're going to have some people who are Republicans, some are Democrats, and they're going to look at these things a little bit differently. But sure, we're going to talk about, you know, what a tough place it is and what, what things that we think are being done or, or wrong or right or how what kind of damage is being done with certain statements and things. So, yeah, there's absolutely that. Whether it's a coordinated group, I can tell you, in fact, it's not a <laughs> conspiratorial or coordinated group. It's like anybody else, but, you know, everybody's moving in different directions. Is there any, let me just conclude on this, is there any, as as you see the conversations that happen on the cable news networks and on social media and to an extent in the, you know, uh, opinion columns and so forth. Is there part of this that we should be thinking of that is not getting enough attention? I do think it's interesting. So the one thing was a little bit different about the government from when I, you know, now I'm sort of watching media and, and, you know, meeting sometimes journalists, is that, is that you guys are all working to try to uncover stuff, but you don't work together. Whereas in, in the intelligence services, we would try to work with, you know, foreign partners or domestic partners to, 
put our you know heads together and our resources together to go after a particularly tough nut. Mm-hmm. So I do see a lot of people working on this Russia stuff and people getting pieces here and pieces there, and a lot of it isn't really put together well or. You know, people who have strengths in one area aren't necessarily trying to help people who have strengths in the other area. So I do think uh, everybody is chasing after sort of latest news and latest thing to be shocked and surprised by. And there doesn't seem to be as much sort of longer term investigative reporting to try to put the, put it together. There is some, and there's, you know, some incredible stuff being done, so I don't mean to suggest it that way, but... but um, yeah, it, it seems like there's so much out there that it could use some synthesis at this point. Got it, got it. Well, John Seifert, thank you so much. This is, I, I, you know, this is, I've, I've really wanted to have you on the podcast uh, so our, our listeners could, could get the benefit of, of your experience and insights. But mainly, I just wanted to have this conversation because, <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, I, I know a little about this world in the sense that a reporter who's done some national security reporting can, but obviously it's, it's basic, it's largely a black box to me. So it's, it's, it's just very interesting to get your sense of basically what is the range of the possible, I guess, is, is, is a way I'd put it. So thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate it. And people can, can find you on Twitter, I believe. So tell us just quickly about the Cypher Report. And you also have a relationship with JustSecurity.org. Am I correct about that? Uh, when, I, when I came out of the government, I, I did, a lot of people go back into contract work. And I, and I did. I went and started working for a consulting company from a crystal group, Stan McChrystal Group, almost all you know, private sector work. And you know once the... You know, essentially, uh, the Trump campaign started going, and the Steele dossier came out and stuff. There seemed to be an interest or a lack of knowledge on the KGB and the Russians and how these things work. So, for the last you know year and a half or so, I've gotten more involved in, in writing and talking about these kind of things, just because it's you know, like you said, it's a black box for a lot of people. So, I'm trying to help put some context around it. And so now I'm doing a variety of things. I'm doing some talks and I'm doing some writing and I'm. Also trying to work with some friends on, you know, providing some content to, to Hollywood writers and things like that. So it's sort of still a work in progress of what my post, post-intelligence career will be like. So it's still, I will keep you informed as I move forward on that. And of course, I'm, I really enjoy talking to you and I'd be glad to talk again, either informally or, or formally on the podcast. Absolutely. I will, I will look forward to it. And thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. All right. Uh, I really, you know, in, in, I wanted to have John on because I wanted to have our listeners here, you know, get his perspective, get his, the, the benefit of his experience. But as you may have been able to tell, I, I just really wanted to hear him myself and ask <laughs> yeah. these questions because, again, people like John and other, other, you know, basically retired spies, they know how they have experience in how this world works that, uh, very few, you know, very, very few of us have directly, and it's just hard to get a, a sense. So I, I, I found that, um, I found that very edifying. I hope you did too. Let me uh, just remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Ready to give it a swirl? Get twenty percent off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Again, that's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Thanks, David. Thanks, Josh. See you next time. Bye.